want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Do people want to be pilots? No, uh, I think it's definitely low right now, the desire to be a pilot. Yeah. Um, the 10-year commitment for this generation is a lot. Uh, to, to sign up for that long. That's the majority of hesitation really? for people that would be able to get there, right? Like okay. they're just like, well, I don't want to sign my life away for 10 years um, if I don't even know if I'm going to like it. Altitude, altitude. Tower 26 has reached you, runway 4 left, wind 040 at 5, clear for takeoff. Sea tide, altitude 0 eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. What's up and thanks for listening in. Hope everyone is doing well. My guest today is Mark Whistler, call sign Juice. He's a Viper driver. Started off his career in the C-130, actually in force support, so not even a pilot. And then ended up as a navigator in the C-130 and then made his way to the mighty Viper. Wrapped up his Viper time as a squadron commander out of Luke Air Force Base, and now he is an ROTC detachment commander over in North Carolina A&T. Had a fun time talking with Juice today. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. In fact, we had so much to talk about, we came back and recorded a second episode, which you can find out there which we really kind of dig more into ROTC. And if you're not a person who's looking to go into ROTC or have someone that is, I think you'll still find that episode interesting because we talk about some of the dynamics that are going on inside the military today and some of the things he's facing, which, again, when we talk generational, there's some unique pieces of today's environment that have changed just in 10, 20 years, let alone if you have been around for much longer than that. So, that's the second episode. Again, it's more of an ROTC focus, but we hit on a few other topics there. Before you're rolling into the episode, just a few admin notes. As always, thank you to my Patreon supporters. Those looking for additional content or looking to support the show, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn Podcast. Also, you can find your way there via the afterburnpodcast.com. Again, for those of hard spelling like me. Over there, additional content. You get the There I Was stories. You get those much earlier than everyone else. Q&A sessions, some additional content. And if you just want to support the show, that helps me out. But at a minimum, as always, if you go to iTunes, Spotify, drop a rating review, help the podcast out if you're liking this content, help the show grow. And that's all I have. That's all the admin. Let's jump into the podcast with Juice. All right. I think now we're rolling. This should work now. The AT&T guy, I think, has buried the cable in front of my house. So that can't, that can't stop us. We've got the new microphone, so that's good to go. Um, again, people don't realize, Juice, just what goes into these podcasts. It's a small miracle every time. You know What can go wrong, it all goes wrong. But 
for those listening, we had a, a few technical difficulties getting this rolling, but I got uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mark Whistler, Juice, joining me on the podcast. So, Juice, thanks for, one, taking the time to join me, and two, you know, delaying like 30 minutes while I just sort my life out to try to make all this happen. No, you're good. Thank you so much for having me, man. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and a lot of my cadets listen to it, so this is kind of a cool... I get to like brag to, to the cadets <laughs> that I'm on this podcast and they're like, Oh, that's so awesome, sir. I can't believe it. Nice. So this is, this is going to uh, buy me a lot of street cred here at, <laughs> at 605. Uh, that's awesome to hear, man. I, I'm glad to have you on it again. Thanks for taking time. I know you're, you're busy, although it's summer, summertime. So I imagine the throttles crack back just a little bit. Do you get a little reprieve summertime? It is. Yeah. The fast and the furious during the school year a little bit, but, um, during the summer, what I try and do is I try and cut most of the staff loose-ish. Yeah. So they do some, you know, working from home, working from the office. And then this, this summer, I've given each person one mental health day per week. Nice. Okay. Um, to, to just let them go and do. I've told them it has to be some sort of like physical fitness or uh, professional development or something with their family or something along those lines. They can't just be lounging around eating Doritos and watching football or whatever. Yeah. I need them actually working on themselves. So that's what we're doing this summer. So yeah, it is a little bit of a crack back, but we also have, we have to send our staff to field training. And so we're yeah. min manned each day. I'm trying to have two people in here each day to answer phones and answer questions and, and do the recruiting piece. Do you have to do field training as a, uh, as professor of aerospace studies? Do you have to go do that or is that, you know, we do, but I, I didn't get, I didn't get called on last summer and then I didn't get called this summer to go. So I, my number just, I guess I was next on the list. Yeah, Better be so. lucky than good. Right. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's a lot of fun just for, <laughs> just for everyone involved to go to Maxwell. Right. Um, which ironically enough, I was the first one to go through Maxwell. Uh, was oh, like, really? yeah, first forever or something like that. I, I, don't know, I was like, a Lackland guy yeah. back in the day. Yeah. I was, Super exciting to call that first. Um, yeah, that that's good to hear, though. The mental, the the professional development, the mental health day. You're kind of giving people. This is some aspect because you have a unique background, which we're going to dig into. But you just came from being an F-16 squadron commander to this job. I think I'm probably getting out of active duty about the time you're leaving that position. I think I've talked about it a good bit, but the fighter world as a whole. Retention's not great. It hasn't been great. Trying to create more fighter pilots, trying to fill the gap. A lot of it's burnout. I mean, I remember, I mean, a lot of uh, me included, a lot of buddies, you just, you go, it's, you park it in AB and you leave it there and there's no reprieve. At home station, when you should be able to crack it back a little bit every now and then, you're going through upgrades, you're hot pitting, it's just never ending. And then, oh, by the way, surprise, you could go to red flag and then, hey, guess what? We're going to tag on three weeks of WIC support to that. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, rinse, repeat. Oh, and then spin up, deploy. It just it gets to be a grinder. It's an awesome job, but it gets to be a grinder. So being able to crack that back. Fighter squadrons. I don't know if, did you see this with the contractors landing in the squadrons, like physical therapists landing in the squadrons, trying to take care of the fighter pilot, if you will, and trying to, treat that as a weapon system in itself. Did you experience any of that? Is that? Yeah. So Luke, Luke was on the leading edge of that and it was pretty awesome to be a part of that um, push to, to like get us preemptive healthcare to take care of our bodies and do those things. Um, and I'll just speak 
on my, you know, it was a retention tool that helped me yeah. for sure. Like I, I, I was on the verge of just being like, Nope, I just want this to be done and over with. And, and that was one thing that it just, if it did anything, it kind of showed me that someone somewhere cared. Yeah. <laughs> right? what? Yeah. And I think people like there are, there are people who definitely care. And I saw like that stuff's on the chopping block already. And it sounded like a lot of people found out via Facebook you know, a lot of commanders got skipped and went straight to Facebook, not the way you want it to do. Because I know there are people who legitimately care. It just seems with the bureaucracy, you are moving a ship, you know, with a rowboat at times, just trying to make things better. But all you can do is like those incremental things like you're doing right now, like kicking your staff yeah. out and making them go do something good for themselves once a week. That's huge, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Luke Luke is one thing. Luke is Luke is a little bit of a break, right. From yeah. that grinder of the calf. Um, and so to have that on top of it is definitely a place where people desired to go, especially we had, you know, when I was a squadron commander there, we had just the best leadership I've ever seen a, an OG wing commander leadership team that, that just knocked it out of the park. And so that really helped, especially as a squadron commander, it helped just, you know, free up that space for us to do things to create um spaces for people to get well and do the things that they need to do with their families and stuff so it was it was awesome to be part of that that's good you know and of course uh, the congress both of them are both of them are out of the air force <laughs> right you know I, yeah, I, yeah i'll say uh, the squad uh, the wing commander and the og i had at shawl right before i left like those if i could work for those two guys uh I, hands down the rest of my career, I would do that. There are threats out there that are not them that I did not want to work for. And I knew that, you know, as you move up the food chain, like it gets smaller and smaller and you're going to work for people that potentially could have a very negative impact on your life. But really my concern was like my family's life, right? If I'm miserable, like they're going to be miserable, which was a, a big motivating factor for me to separate. But again, it's like there are, as you can't talk about like, these two guys that you worked under, the two that I worked, Maestro uh, and Hack, Hack retired. Maestro still, he has a star. He's moved on. But those guys, I mean, they're lightning rods. The spears, they're absorbing on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, I flew Maestro on a demo ride. And I remember it was right after he told uh, Comac that Shaw was not going to fly our flying hours. My previous four years at Shaw we were flying. It was, it was nonstop. Like talk about good problems to have, but like, I think in the month of July, I counted, I was like, I flew like 26 stories. It's, it's like, it's too much when you're doing mission planning, debriefing, mm -hmm. and you really, you're not able to get the full quality out of it. But previous guys had always said, yes, yes, yes. And I mean, it was breaking, it was breaking the jets. It was breaking the force just to get all the flying hours done. So you didn't turn to Congress and say, Hey, we didn't use these oh, I know we were complaining we didn't get enough because of sequestration, but we can't use them. Um, and he finally turned around and said, no, we're not doing it. And I was like, hey, boss, I realize, like, I think I realize how big of a thing that is that you said to the boss that we're not doing it. Um, I think a lot of the guys will, maybe, maybe people will realize, uh, squadron commanders for sure, DO is recognized, but like the yeah. lieutenant has like no idea the spear he just took right to the face uh, for mm -hmm. stepping up for something like that. But I don't know. I, those guys, they're good and they're bad. Um, I, I don't. I don't personally. I don't think I want to yeah. do that job. It's just a yeah. That our 
our OG took spears for the, you know, the B course, you know, trying to slash B course, uh, but ramp up production at the same time. Yeah. He was just, you know, he, he would like publicly just go, no, that's not, that's not happening. Like there is no way we can <laughs> cut the B course to five months or six months. You know, there's no way to do that. So I'm curious. Yeah. What did you see? The only thing I understand about you, I've had stuff about UPT 2.5 on here. I'll be honest. I did an episode with Motor Riley, who I know Motor really well, and it was bad on me. I talked about a bunch of stuff. The one aspect I didn't realize is they get their wings after T6s. So part of me is like, one, why is that? I can think that you know down the road, you're going to be able to cut the corner and get people um, you know, to jets faster, maybe the heavies. Or they're qualifying the T6, doing IFF T6, whatever it might be. But also, I'm like, mm, skeptical me. This is probably a numbers game. And look, we just like boosted the timeline by six months and I saw a little bit at Shaw where they were talking about they wanted to cut everything missionized out of the F-16 B course did you see what kind of chops did you see they them wanting to do out of there well yeah so my experience in the B course is pretty limited because I, I spent the majority of my time aka all of my time at Luke in the FMS world and That's so right. I did see that um, Good job. I just sat across the table from the you know Mother Hubbard and and those <laughs> folks who were just like fighting the good fight every yeah. day, trying to figure out how to, you know, add rides back in and get those, the quality training for the students so that they weren't, you know, getting to the calf and the calf having to absorb all of that training that, that they weren't yeah. able to get them in the B course. I remember, and you know, I did a thing, a Mezzer's mishap with my buddy Bender, who was the chief of OGV at the time. And, you know, to go through that, yeah, that was he was sitting there when the OG said, "Hey, we're getting these guys from the B course that have never been to the tanker." I don't know if you remember. Like, I remember my first night tanking ride. I remember oh, my yeah. first tanking ride. Like, all the penguins on the iceberg were just trying to hang on, and there was like it was an ice cube, and they were getting kicked off really fast. And yeah, it was a basic ride. It was going out doing like high aspect BFM, hit the tanker, but the focus was going the to the tanker and. Yep. I mean, I was terrible at it. And then you know, yeah, and then you had night in yeah. that, and it just, I mean, it like. What are we? What are we doing here? And so those cut like in my mind, that's cutting corners, and that's a basic skill set. That while it's not incredibly difficult, like you need to do it like once or twice, where this is the focus to like, hey, all right, good. Now you can put your pants on. We can go to work. Type deal. Yeah, I'll be honest. The first, the, the the time that I got good at tanking was when I had to, right? So like when you have to go across the pond and if you don't get it, if you don't get on the tanker, you don't stay on the tanker, you're going to have to turn around and go home and everyone else is going to leave you. That teaches you real quick uh, yeah. just to be an athlete and make it happen. Right. That's it. There is no plan B, right? Like be a champion yeah. and like make it happen. That's I, my, you know, I got two tank. Uh, no, I guess three tanking events. I got, you know, one day, one night in the B course and I showed up. And there was one random tanker and like MQT. And then there was like nothing. We went to Wessup out at Hill and I was flying back. I got put in the D model, which was just awesome. You know, being like the new guy, but I had, uh, I forget Vaughn. I think he was, he was a flight commander. He was in my pit. Uh, but he was like, man, you know, if you, he's like, I don't know how to instruct you from back here. So <laughs> I think that looks about right. He's never a B course instructor. And uh, he's like, you know, if you don't make it happen, like, we're going to land and I'm going to get in the front seat. We're going home. I'm like noted. Okay. Be a champion. You know, and it's like, you're going to make it happen. Yep. <laughs> well, that's, uh, it's interesting to hear. I know we kind of digress, but I want to peel back, jump back a little bit 
and hear a little bit about like where you started because you have had a, you had a slightly different path than most to get into the front seat of a Viper. Can you tell me about yeah. yeah that? Pretty crazy path. There's my phone. I meant to turn that down. All right. Uh, He's a boss. So ROTC graduate. I went to Montana State. I, gra- I grew up in Montana. Uh, I have one brother, um, basically hunting and fishing all my life and then yeah. playing sports. So sports was a huge aspect of my life. I go to college completely missing that aspect of like uh, camaraderie and sports. And so I join ROTC. I follow my brother into ROTC and do that about halfway through ROTC, we get the PAS swap out, right? So yeah. the professor of aerospace studies swaps out and I get someone who is less than optimum for the job. <laughs> and, and to be honest, now that I look back on it, it was definitely some maturity issues on my part too. But um, at the time I was like, I can't stand this. Why am I in ROTC? Why am I going in the Air Force? And so I took the you know, the path of least resistance. And I'm like, just make me anything that I do four years and I'm going to get out and go back to Montana and be a teacher and a coach and life will be good. So I graduate as a services officer. We don't even have services anymore. Force support um, officer. And I go to Mountain Home Air Force Base. So I go one state over from Montana and basically it's just like an <laughs> extension of Montana. Um Luckily, my brother, who was also in the Air Force at the time and still is, he uh, was a Strike Eagle Wizzo, and he was also stationed at Mountain Home. And so we got to reunite there. And and I got to see firsthand, like, the ops side of the Air Force. And as a support guy, it opened my eyes, A, to what we were supporting, and then, B, it was like, that's what I want to do. Right? I don't want to be a support guy for the rest of my career. <laughs> And so I followed him into that side and I applied for the active duty rated board. From there, I got picked up to be a nav. We don't have those anymore. Uh, old. So I was a C-130 navigator. Yeah, old. Celestial, <laughs> like shooting the stars type stuff. Um, I was a C-130 slick navigator uh, at Pope Air Force Base for one assignment. And then I got picked up to go to pilot training from there. Oh, nice. So in order to go to pilot training at that point in my life, I needed a waiver from the vice chief of staff because I had been in for more than five years, total active uh, commission yeah. time. I don't know. It was, you know, all stars aligned and I got that uh, waiver approved and went to pilot training. From there, I went to the Viper and the rest is kind of history. I did Osan Hill for a really long time and then I went to school. And then I was for sure out of school. They're going to pull me to some staff because I'd never been to staff or anything. Um, and I got pulled directly back to the Viper to be a DO and a commander out at Luke. Yeah, better be lucky than good. That's kind of yeah. like the name I mean, of the game. Luck and timing. It's just crazy because my brother, who's also an F-16 guy, way better officer than me, <laughs> uh, better leader. He, he, you know, He's done all the things in combat, like all the stuff in the Viper that I haven't had a chance to do. Um, and didn't get to go to school, didn't get picked up to be a DO right away, didn't get picked up to be a commander. It only came like after everyone had written him off and he was staff, ATC staff A3. So he was like doing Stanaval stuff for ATC, uh, you know, flying with all the different ATC units. He comes back to Luke as a sunset assignment and gets picked up as a DO and get, and then gets picked up as a commander. And he's currently a sitting squadron commander at Luke. 
and he's three years older than me. That's, so. that's the thing though. It's, uh, you know, right place, right time, right qualifications. That's how a lot of this stuff happens. Yeah. I mean, there's always anomalies, but I think that it's right timing. Like that is yeah. a, a big factor of it. And honestly, you know, for me, that was actually a scary part. And one of the things when they were going around 2014 doing this fighter pilot, like retention, uh, roadshow, I don't know if you, if you were a part of that or not, but oh, yeah. one of the aspects I knew the two star personally, uh, I guess it was like 2015 or no, it was later than that. Um, and he asked like, Hey, what are your thoughts about staying in? You know, they gave this briefing and unfortunately we had a Lieutenant Colonel in our squadron at Shaw who showed up. He'd been out of the Viper for a little bit. You know, they put him back, they put him through the flug and they're going to put him in the IPUG, but then they have a random 365 that's been vacant for 18 months. So they send him to Kabul, he works for the army. So, you know, there's this whole, like, again, like, all right, 18, it's a, tw- a 12 month deployment, but you know, he's got like three months of spin up training beforehand. You know, the training doesn't necessarily align. So it really eats up like five months on the front end. And then on the back end, he's got R and R and then they spend mm-hmm. all this time figuring out if they're going to recall him at Shaw or if they're going to send him to a schoolhouse to recall him. Well, that takes like three months to say, hey, we'll do an in-house recall at Shaw. And the wing commander's like, nope, we don't have enough hours for it. So this dude, he rides the last three years of his career out as like the op soup, at, you know, just sitting at the desk. You know, that was his one like primary like flying-related duty. And I was like, you know what? Like the bad deal train, show the good deal train and the bad deal train. Like there are two trains. And if you get on the good deal train, like life's usually great. <laughs> But if the bad deal train shows up and you're the only one who can get on it, like, guess what? You have to go. Like, you could be a great dude, and it's just going to be it's going to be really painful for the rest of your time. Yeah, and I think what the air I think the air force is actually starting to realize that people other than the people on that bad train are paying attention to right. the bad train, right? Like they're seeing the good dudes just get hammered by the bad train. And they're like, well, I don't want that. And they jump ship and go. Yeah. Cause this guy was not a bad dude. He, I mean, he was on, he was a commander select of ATC and ACC, like good dude, just again, wrong place, wrong time. Like he showed up and you know, he was like the last one to show up for whatever, you know, maybe he was finishing up his previous job, finishing up school, yada, yada, yada. And he is just tailing Charlie. And it's like, well, we need an 05. And you're our least qualified F-16 05 at the time. So congratulations. You're going to <laughs> Afghanistan. You know, it's like, man. So that to me, and that was my reason. I was like, hey, look, you could be a really good dude. And the stars don't align for you. And it could be a really painful, like mm-hmm. at that point you're on the bonus, like you're going to get to 20 and it's done. Although now this is something I am, you might know more about this. The fact that the 20 is gone, right? Like the amount of young dudes in the squadron, when I was there, they all enrolled in the blended retirement, the blended retirement. They, they had the option they enrolled, but now everyone coming in is in the blended retirement system. So that 20 year carrot's no longer there. Well, it is a little bit. So um, if you get to 20, you still get a percentage. Do you? Okay. It's just not as high. It's 40% if oh. I'm not mistaken. So they dropped it by 10%, but you have the ability to match now the whole time you're in. Well, the whole time minus the first two years. So you have to okay. serve for two years and then they start matching after that. So gotcha. yeah, I've learned more about the blended retirement yeah. system in this job yeah. than I ever wanted to know. 
I'm I'm curious because again, I that's something. One, it wasn't a factor for me. Like I was going to hang out and be the the twenty year. Like that's and doing the reserves. Like the twenty years, the only thing that matters to me. But I know there were a lot of young dudes because I didn't I didn't think about getting out until about two years prior. Like I didn't have my ETP or anything anything like that. And long story of why that showed up. But there was a person who showed up who was on the game plan that was really difficult to work with that um, we knew he was going to be a superstar and not mm. the guy you wanted to work for. But um, the amount of like young dudes in the squadron who like first assignment that already were like working on their airline app or like, you know, queuing everything up and their hours I was like, Oh, that's kind of surprising. Same, you know, they already switched to a blended retirement system, which told me that, you know, young guys, everyone is watching and they're mm-hmm. aware it's, it's no longer, I think just like, Matt, we can bank on these guys staying in. And if we treat good guys good and bad guys will, you know, filter themselves out. I say bad guys. I mean, yeah, this is like, yeah. when we talk about who we're talking about, like, <laughs> bad's like, yeah, I don't know, you're in the top 5%, top 10% yeah. of whatever it is. That, you know, so. that piece um, has become very clear to me about the caliber of people that are in the Air Force. Um, as I work in this job and just see kind of, cause you know, I have no military surrounding me here. And so it's just, it's us against the world. It feels like that some days. So um, it makes it very difficult. That, that decision <laughs> to like jump ship, it has not become easier in this job uh, because I, of that reason. I'm curious about that aspect. I looked at going into business and actually I do some things on the side that are non-flying related business wise Good and bad, but it is like eye-opening. I mean, I think things that, not saying the military has this all dialed down, right? But I think inherently you get to this level. Like you can show up on time to a meeting. Uh, if you're not going to make it on time, like you call ahead. You know, like there's like these basic things that you would consider that, that don't necessarily happen or are not assumed in other places, which is surprising to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just answering the phone or returning an email or yeah, those are the basic things that I'm missing right now from the military. <laughs> <laughs> Man, neither here nor there. Yeah. It's, it's all good. All fun. Well, all right, back, back. Let's jump back into uh, the kind of transition out of the services world into being a navigator. One, you, you kind of glossed over it, I think, but I will hit on it. Like the fact that you got a vice chief of staff waiver, to go to navigator training. I know that was no small feat. I don't even know how you'd write that E triple S nor how that'd be routed. That sounds incredibly painful, but you did it and you got approved. So, uh, obviously I imagine there were not a lot of people who got that waiver or get that yep, level. Yeah. Get so that, that one, that was to get to pilot training. So that, because I had gone from services to nav and then as I'm, I was deployed actually when the, you know, the results of the board came out, but they, they, because I had been in for longer than five years as a commission officers, they won't, they wouldn't at the time, they would not allow you to switch AFSCs after five years. And so the, the waiver authority was the vice chief of staff. And so I, you know, there, there's a couple things that I think I did that set me up for, to get that, but it was not intentional, like to get that waiver. I didn't even know that I needed it until I went to go put the, the UPT package in and they were like, you can't do this. And, and you don't understand how many times I've been told no or been told you can't do this in the military. And I've yeah. just kind of fought back and said, no, there's got to be a waiver somewhere. I, I know that I can. Um, and so, yeah, we 
I there's a story. So I when I was in the C-130, I was deployed a lot. Um, I was stationed at Pope, and I was only there for one assignment. But I think I slept in my house, my first house that I ever purchased. I think I slept in it probably like 36 to 38 days or something like that. And I was stationed there for over two years. So I, I was gone just a ton uh, during that time. During my first deployment, the C-130 that we were flying was the E model. So the old uh, slicks, yeah. Pope, they all, are all in the boneyard now. Or on po- or on sticks somewhere at uh, <laughs> Little Rock, or I think one of them's down at Pope still. Um, we were deployed, and and we had started trying to use this new, like, lack of a better word, like Link Sixteen for uh, some bombers were on there, and then uh, cargo okay. airlift type uh, aircraft. It was called the Combat Track Two uh, system, and we could like. It was like a Merc chat almost. You could like text okay. back and forth uh, via your computer to different platforms that are in the AOR. Well, we got it put on our e-models and the e-models, you couldn't use the air conditioner below 5,000 feet. And so as we were descending through 5,000 feet, you'd have to kill all the air conditioner and it would just, I mean, the temperature would just skyrocket in there. And then we're like, you know, offloading cargo and onloading passengers in Iraq. And it was like 120 degrees and everything is overheating. We're having to like shut everything down. Well, we couldn't get anyone on this system because the way that they implemented the system was to cargo strap it down to the navigator bunk area. Like, you know, the bunk in a C-130 and it has like that pleather uh, pad that you're supposed (laughs) to be able to sleep on. That's really uncomfortable. They just, strap the thing down to that and they're like yeah that should be good it's not going to go anywhere and i'm like yeah it's never going to work and it wouldn't it would not you could never get that thing logged in because it was overheated the moment you stepped to the airplane (laughs) and it never would cool off enough to get logged in and so in my off days we flew probably every other day uh, of that deployment but in my off days i was you know besides working out going to the uh gym tan laundry uh style i walked around and i found like scraps of wood and i went took it to the wood shop on base which we had a wood shop on base we're at ali asalim in kuwait and i built a box if you will (laughs) out of the plywood that would allow to like rack these things separately and provide some sort of air to circulate around them. I took it to the OG and I was like, Hey, can I take this on a C-130 and see if it works? And he's like, sure. So I take it in, put it all in there. Lo and behold, we get logged in the very first, I mean, very first sortie we use it, we're able to log in and it stays logged in the whole time. And so I come back and report to the OG and he's like, I'm going to have CE build uh, one of these for every single C-130 in the AOR. <laughs> and awesome. so for months, I, I went home and for months, actually, it was it probably was years later, I was still getting text messages and pictures from the AOR of the box, like sitting in the C-130. They never came up with a better solution than a plywood box to put the combat that, track to it. That's amazing. You know, so I, that right there, that right there got you. is what I say got me the vice chief of staff waiver. That's, that's awesome. You know, the the parallel story I have to that because you probably used this at some point. I you know I did MC twelves in Afghanistan and then I deployed Operation Hair Resolve before it was even named. 
And the uh, 13th, the guys out of Masawa, like they kind of kicked off combat operations mm-hmm. there, but they were doing training. And then ISIS kicked it off. So the ATOs start flowing. Uh, and for those who don't know, like the ATO, I mean, it's hundreds of pages. And I mean, it, there's a, a spaghetti chart of Excel numbers and things with all this data you need from, you know, IFF codes to tanker tracks, tanker time, everything you need to go do a mission. And they were hand jamming all this stuff in. I mean, it was taking to make one data card for one sortie, you know, it was taking like two hours, like per data card to like pull all this information. Undoubtedly stuff was going to be transposed incorrectly. So I was like, you know what? Like I remember in the MC 12, we were using something. And so like I reached back to, it was actually an Alabama guard guy. Now he had it, this Excel doc that would extrapolate everything from the ATO, just a couple little tweaks. So like, I get it. And I'm like, Hey, it's pretty exciting. I'm like, I have no idea how to make this work. It's all macros and stuff. We had one guy in our squadron, Chuck. He's still still out there, super geek. You're great, Chuck, if you're listening. But Chuck's like, oh, yeah, I developed this when he was in the Viper. He got Tammy 21, like, back in, like, 07. So, like, he developed it, like, in 05 in Iraq. And this Excel doc, like, lived throughout all these conflicts, all these years, and it was, like, the best product that the Air Force could not come up with if they had someone else do it. It's like, well, how is this not a thing yet? You're, you're welcome, Microsoft, for that yeah. plug. Excel, Excel working from uh, 2006 to, right. I, I mean, I saw the same thing in the Herc. I, I, I deployed to the Kayak. I did a non-flying Kayak six-month tour at Al-Udid. It was Ugh. brutal. Ugh. And we tried that. to transition out of, we were scheduling all C-130s for CENTCOM on an Excel document. And they tried to make us transition to, you know, like, the pecs or wings or whatever right. it was uh and it wouldn't work and so i had i had like lieutenant colonels i was a captain at the time yeah, i was a captain at the time that were like you're no longer using that excel spreadsheet and i'd like pick up my monitor and be like i am using it see right here like it's because the other thing doesn't work <laughs> that's yeah it's like pecs pecs I, I just watch it from afar now like the the facebook pages with pecs it sounds like that's just a nightmare as a sunset certain features and some yep. things don't work you're like hey we're gonna spend a lot of money on this product and like we're gonna get it mm, about halfway there <laughs> and uh this is how you're gonna do everything now so good luck you're like wait wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> back to excel uh, <laughs> back to excel back to the puck board you know throw magnets man oh yeah ah uh, just good times therefore it's great they're it's great. It's, it's all going to buff out in the end. It's just, this stuff is like comical. And while, uh, yeah, I think here's, here's the thing. Here's the learning point. There are some uh, really innovative people and smart people out there, much smarter than me, such as yourself, who come up with great ideas to solve problems that shouldn't be a problem that needs to be solved. But Correct. You know, yep. the fact that you're able to get that approved and, fl- and, and fly with it is actually a testament yeah, to itself. Yeah, as a wooden box. Like a wooden, it's not even like, it's such a fire hazard, but they're like, yes, load them on all the C-130s. <laughs> yeah, we're using a special asbestos glue that's highly flammable <laughs> and carcinogenic, but it's all we had over here in the Middle East to uh, make these, but it's good. It's good. So there you go. Well, that makes sense then why you were able to get the vice chief of staff of the Air Force to sign off on yeah. you going to pilot training. Because what you mentioned is like, you never take no for an answer. Like there's always, there's, that's the thing. I, no matter where you go, someone like finance will tell you no. Well, like most likely that person really doesn't know the answer. They're just saying no because they don't want to look it up. Now, that's not always the case, right? So do it smartly. 
those listening. But your point is like there's usually always a way. There's always another way. There's a waiver for it, or there's another way to get whatever you're trying to accomplish get done. That outside the box thinking, and there's a lot of parallels yeah. there between what you're saying. Yeah. So. so I, you know, like I said, my brother is way smarter than me. He was uh, Stan Val at the time, and I was the DO of the 21st at Luke. And I don't know if it was weekly or biweekly, but I would call him and be like, how do I do this? Like, there's got to be a way to get from A to Z without having to go through every single. And he's like, I don't know how many times he said it to me, but he was like, well, who's the waiver authority? Did you like who, what, what regulation is saying this and who's the waiver authority for it? And it took about six months of me doing this where I'm like, all right, I need to question every regulation, every Thing that's in there and find the waiver authority and ask the questions because there's people out there and this was like in the age of when they were starting to push all that decision authority back down to the squadron and so we were able to like do things that years they've been struggling with and we're like well yeah. can we just get a waiver for it and they're like yeah just wave it and move on I wonder if that's still going around. I did have one of my buddies. He sent me a message. He's up at Ileson. So, you know, the demo, uh, the runway length and width was waved down. I think it was waved down to 75 feet for the Viper, but is in a demo regulation, which, you know, is not a two, you know, F-16 yeah. Vol 3. So, like, where does that, like, who owns that, et cetera, et cetera, because they were running into issues at Ileson with snow in plowing the runway. It was a challenge to plow it all, you know, it, it was slowing them down. Like they're losing a go or whatever yeah. it was because of it. And I was like, I, I don't know, but that is part of the problem is there's so many regulations out there and so many different spots and who owns what and where does this fall? I think it's just been written over time and they haven't been cleaned out, but I felt like, Again, there was a big push, and it felt like it lasted for about like two years, and maybe it's still going on. I'm so far removed now. Where to get rid of AFIs? There was. There was a huge yeah. push to get rid of AFIs, but what I see happened was they renamed a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and so they went from AFI to AFMANS, or, you know, like now it's a manual, not an instruction. They did get rid of a lot, and they combined a lot of stuff. So it has, it has simplified it a little bit, but I'll I just say the big lesson is – read the first couple paragraphs of that thing every single time to figure out where the waiver authority lies so that you can read it with that bias and go, you know, how, how much risk do we want to assume here by waiving X, Y, or Z? Do you feel as a ROTC commander, I mean, is that something you deal with regularly or is it pretty cut and dry? Like, you know, students in, in the fall, students commission in the spring, like, are you running like, yeah, there's not a there's not a ton of room for, you know, waving things here, because um, it's pretty cut and dry what we do. Yeah, what you know, the ones that I can think of are like we have a blanket waiver right now from our region for the third go at the AFOQT, which is supposed to be at his level. He's waved it down to our level and just said, as long as they've done something between that second and third test, you can just go ahead and allow them to take that third test because, I, and I don't even understand why if they allow the third test on a waiver, like just allow the third test, like what right. risk are we buying by just allowing right. a third go at the AFLQT? It's painful for everyone. So they're not trying to take it three times, you know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really the only thing that I can think of that I've had to kind of go after a waiver for. 
Is that for someone to actually like pass the minimums or try to improve their score? And is that something you're seeing a lot of? Are you seeing like, yes. We, it, yeah. Yeah. Really? I okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's intended to be for someone who cannot pass the test. Okay. I don't think it's written anywhere that it has to be used for that. All right. So follow on question. Cause I did a little bit of recruiting. I found it interesting that, uh, well, one, I go, I go back to the fighter pilot crisis, but I think you can tie it to the pilot crisis, if you will. If I, well, and I guess we can't use crisis because that's solved. But it they're, uh, yeah, task so, force. Task force, yeah. So, are you seeing like one? I saw where there are not a lot of people. Are there an overwhelming majority of people that are not interested in becoming pilots, which is fine. But I felt like when I was growing up, maybe I was just surrounded by a group of people that that's what they really wanted to do. When I got to ROTC, you know, everyone in my class, with the exception of like one guy who wanted to go to med school, wanted to be pilots. Um, and then, yeah, that, that carries through. We can talk about, you know, pilot training. No one wants to be a fighter pilot, et cetera. Are, do, are you finding it tough to, you know, have enough numbers in ROTC? Do people want to be pilots? No. Uh, I think it's definitely low right now, the desire to be a pilot. Yeah. Um, the 10-year commitment for this generation is a lot uh, to, to sign up for that long. That's the majority of hesitation really? for people that would be able to get there. Right. Like okay. they're just like, well, I don't want to sign my life away for 10 years. Um, if I don't even know if I'm going to like it. Interesting. And so there, have... there's some of that. I don't know how much you know about the detachment that I'm at. So North Carolina A&T is the largest historically black college in the nation. And so, um, makes sense to put a yeah. guy like me here, right? <laughs> you fit the bill. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's It's been challenging. Uh, the first year was extremely challenging. Just, um, and I don't know how much, you know, predecessors uh, before me worked at it. Um, I know the guy that was right before me, he was a special operations guy. So he, he was a no-nonsense type uh and if you didn't know, then you didn't need to know type thing. He, okay. he just, you know, he was cut and dry, very about just doing the job here and, and uh, get, getting the, the cadets through and commissioning them. And he, he did good at cutting some of the fat that I think was being allowed to get through before that. Um, but what we didn't have here was an established, like, relationship with the college. And so they, the college didn't understand us. And I showed up in the middle of A, the pandemic, and B, when I was traveling from Luke to here, it was in the thick of the George Floyd riots that were happening across the okay. nation. And so, you know, I was driving here like eyes wide, like, am, are they even going to want me there? Yeah. You know? And, and come to find out, it, you know, it, it works. It, it, it has been challenging. But after about a year the people that I work with on this campus can see and can sense and hopefully can feel the fact that I am here for the good of their students. You know, like I really, I really want everyone to, to get through this program and yeah. do the best that they can. And I don't think that's what they thought was happening before. That's an interesting dynamic that I can't imagine being in. And this is one thing that, you know, probably not qualified to speak on, but, the fact I, I, I know like racism that exists, right? Like you're 
a white guy, right, and a predominantly, you know, African-American historical, you know, largest one in the nation, right? Um, and I can, there's not, again, the fighter pilot community is not very diverse. I think that's one thing they're working on, right? But traditionally, you walk into a fighter squadron, it's a bunch of white dudes. Like, that mm-hmm. is that is the fighter squadron. We had female fighter pilots. Uh, I go with, like, Loco, my, my good buddy, uh, F-22 guy. He just took over squadron at uh, Hickam. Hawaii. Uh, yeah. And like, he was, you know, he's a graduate. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's, I thought, <laughs> I was like, Loco might. So, ironically enough, Loco is my first person I interviewed for this podcast. And it was so terrible that I was like, Loco, man, I cannot put this out. We're going to have to re record it. <laughs> um, yeah. He just took over. I was, I was trying to line up my schedule where I could go out there for his change of command, but I failed. So, um, Loco is a great, great dude. Um, and that is one thing that I know, again, racism exists. It's out there. Uh, but, you know, it's like I never have looked at Loco as a black fighter pilot. I've looked at Loco as a fighter pilot who happens to be black, like, because I don't care. And I think coming from, I don't know, at least the fighter pilot world, like, I don't care what you look like, who you like, what you do, but I expect you to shoot the right person at the right time <laughs> and, you know, drop the bomb in the right spot. Yeah. Like, that's really, that's, that's all that matters. Like, Show up on time, be a good wingman, be a good flight lead, be a good instructor, whatever it might be. Like, that's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's been cool. And, and the fact that he's out there and I have connected with him, he came back for our dining out this year. He was our guest of honor or guest speaker or whatever. Okay. Um, he was texting me, I guess, while he was out there. Now I'm like, I was in, I was in Alaska and I was actually looking at Raptors flying in the pattern and I sent him a message. So I was like, okay, (laughs) now now all the stars align. Yeah. So we actually, so we started a podcast here. Our cadets started a podcast here, okay. and they interviewed him when he was here. So nice. we've got a, we've got a, uh, an episode out there with him on it. Long story short, it, it, you know, it has worked over the last two years, but it would work a lot better if they would put someone wearing this, who is an African American or who is, yeah. you know, a person of color, because the students here, it doesn't matter how much I tell them, Hey, you can do this. You can, I, I, you have the ability. I know you can do this. They, they don't, it's their own like self-limiting and history basically up to like age 20, though everything they've been through up to that point holds them back and they, they self limit themselves, if you will. Yeah. Um, and basically say, well, the Air Force, I, you know, they don't want me flying their planes. This is things that I've heard since I've been here. They don't want me flying their planes. And I'm like, no, they do. And I think you would yeah. make a good pilot, like push yourself and you can get there. And so I think if, if we were to put someone in this position wearing a bag, it would make the biggest difference for the Air Force, right? Just to have that person yeah. who looks like them to represent them and say, look, I did it you can do it also. And I think it would, it, it would snap a lot quicker. Other things that we're doing um, in ROTC wide is uh, because you talked about, you know, the desire to be a pilot. They've done this. You can fly program where they get $3,500 and they hand it to me. And I just get to pick a student and go, Hey, this student right. is doing well, go to this FBO or pick an FBO in the local area and go use this 3,500 bucks to go fly your first sortie and see what you think. And I've seen that kind of turn the light bulb on, on multiple occasions That's cool. Uh, at this detachment to where people were like, well, I want to do this. I want to do that. And, and I can see it in their eyes that that's not really what they want to do. 
they go yeah. fly and then they come back and they're like, Hey, I want to be a pilot. And I'm like, I thought that's what it was, but um, I'm glad that this changed your mind. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's one thing I actually did. Uh, I was attached to debt one recruiting, which I got out and it was supposed to be dealing with like air shows and Lincoln recruiters and pandemic hit, like it all changed. But yeah. that one is it's, it's targeted at diversity recruiting, which I thought my strength there would be able to like, Hey, you know, air shows typically when you go to an air show, like it's not people from underserved communities, like the inner city yeah. is not coming out to, you know, the countryside to the air show, but figuring out ways that, Hey, you know, maybe this school that's underserved doesn't have recruiters, you know, show up, like you can get them and their families out there um, to do it. Long story short, like, yeah, that, so that was my first introduction to the recruiting side was cause I did the demo thing, uh, 2013, 2014, yeah. 2013 was completely axed, right? Like <laughs> yeah. they hired time. me and then they canceled the whole season. Uh, and then this, they brought us back in like uh, halfway mode in just a heritage flight yeah. um, for 2014. And so I got to go to some air shows and do that. And we tried to hit, you know, underserved uh, middle schools and high schools and stuff like that. And so, you, you know, that was my first taste of like, they, they can't see themselves doing it. Yeah. They just like, it's just not in their brain yet to go like, I can do this. I can actually be a pilot. Yeah. Cause like I, I say, I grew up in an aviation community. Like everyone around me, except for my parents were pilots They're Delta pilots. They're former air force or Navy guys. So, like I was surrounded by it. So I could see that path. Like, I don't know. I didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Maybe if I'd been <laughs> surrounded by doctors or lawyers, that's what I'd want to do. Because yeah, if you can see someone who looks like you or you're exposed in that environment that someone can like put the bumpers up and tell you to go this path, you can ping off the bumpers, but it gets you to the end state. Um, that's huge. So I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, did you want to come, did you want to go do ROTC after Luke? I mean, to me, it seems like a sweet deal, but it's a different career path for, for most guys. Yeah, my career path has not been standard like we talked about. And so, yeah, yeah I, I was getting ready to wrap up my command. It was like a two-year, four- or five-month command there. And I applied probably a year before to get picked up uh, the summer that I would have been leaving. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't make the cut. And so then I applied the next year, and I'm like, I'll just stay a year at Luke uh, after I graduate from squadron command and, and then try and go do the, the ROTC thing. And I didn't get picked up again. And I was like, what? Like I have a master's in education in adult. Education. I have a master's in education and I'm a graduated squadron commander and they, they're screaming that they need pilots to be, you know, yeah. part of a sessions to bring in new pilots or whatever. And they, they would not pick me. So I actually called ATC and I was like, Hey, I, you know, they, they were going to have a supplemental board, but we had to reapply, completely reapply. And I called the guy that I was supposed to send all my information to. And I said, Hey, I'm not, I would love to reapply, but I need some feedback as to why I'm not getting picked up on these boards. And he looks at everything. And he's like, well, I don't, I don't see why you're not getting picked up. He's like, you should have gotten picked up. And I'm like, okay, thanks. That doesn't really help. <laughs> so I fast forward about two weeks this guy calls me and he goes, Hey, do you still want to go be an ROTC instructor or a, a debt commander? I'm like, it depends. And he goes, well, we've got a couple open spots that are, you know, 
must fills and people fell out or whatever. And, and I'm like, whatever, I'm used to being the best of what's left. So go ahead and bring it on. <laughs> and, uh, and so he goes, Hey, uh, we want you to go to, t- uh, North Carolina anti state university. And I was like, I don't even know. So I'm Googling it and it says Greensboro, North Carolina. And I turned to my wife and I'm like, didn't you grow up right next to next or near Greensboro? And she's from literally like 20 minutes from Greensboro. Her family all still lives here. And so we took this assignment for that reason so that we could get back uh, yeah. close to her family and, and, and do what I, what I wanted to do. You know, I circle all the way back to my ROTC days. I've always wanted to go back and be that first professor of aerospace studies that I had. He was a B1 pilot and he was just an awesome dude. Yeah. And I wanted to go back and do that. And so this was my chance to do that. And honestly, I see a ton of like impact that you can have as a uh, as a PAS on the students that are just leaving this system and heading out into the Air Force, just doing things right, little things like doing commissioning right, where we have, you know, whoever you want to commission, you can come. I don't care how long the ceremony lasts, like we can do this all day. If you want to have your grandfather come in here and we have to walk him down to the stage for him to raise your right hand and give you the oath, that's the way we're going to do it. And just those little things of taking care of people, I've seen start to impact the culture of the cadets here and they're actually starting to like get it. Yeah, that's so awesome. Hopefully that's that's the way it continues after I leave here and who knows, you know, you know, the way of the military you leave and yeah. you never really know what's going to happen with, yeah. with your squadron, but uh, you wish it best and walk out the door. Yeah. It's good and bad. I'll be honest. Juice. The only thing I heard in that entire time was the luckiest man on earth, how he didn't become the deputy OG at Holloman or Kunsan. The fact that yeah. you're able to hang around Luke for a year after a year. Yeah. Or so, after. so I got, it was, it was in the middle of the crisis. Right. And so they were handing out second assignment in place. That's awesome. And, and it was not, I don't think it was a program meant for squadron commanders, but again, <laughs> the leadership that I had from the OG and, and wing commander, I was like, well, I'll apply for that. And I applied right. for a second assignment in place and they approved it and it went to ATC and they're like, I don't think it's whatever, approve it. <laughs> this is the wrong guy. Sign- oh, I didn't mean to sign that form, but yep, it's signed now. So <laughs> yeah. I'm here. Yeah. So Man. I had a second assignment in place. I was just going to be there for another three years after I graduated squadron command. Uh, but then this derailed that. So, yeah, the uh, the O five just flying the line in the Viper at Luke sounds it like it might be the best job in the world. But it, I'm sure that it was. And and you know I have no qualms with people who did it. <laughs> As I but... got closer to graduating Squadron Command and was dealing with some of that leadership stuff, I was like, I don't think I want to be that guy. You yeah. know. But, there was just part of me that was like frustrated with the way that they were gaming the system a little bit. And, you know, they wouldn't fill the schedule on these days and I can't fly that sortie because it's too much mission planning and too much debriefing, but I can fly the sortie because I can walk in, fly it and walk out and, you know, have a four hour day. Yeah. So part of me was a little bit frustrated at that. And so I jumped at the chance to be like, I don't want to do that. I want to go do something that's, that has a little bit more impact. The, the fact, the doing the ROTC bit, one, I always thought would be really interesting, but like you said, I know the impact you're having there, it's got to be huge. It's good to, I mean, ROTC needs good officers to come back. Like, that's the first, like, that's where the shaping, the molding is really, is really happening, I think. And obviously, it happens once they commission and, and move on, but I do remember I had a really good set of cadre for, like, 
three years. And then my last year, a guy came in who was just like, like the epitome of, I was like, I don't want to be anything like yeah, this yeah. guy. Like, it's the non-example, right? Like I'm never yeah. going to do that. And that's, I didn't, I was, it was immature at the point. Like there's always a way to like kind of work with it. But I was like taking notes and later on, like I had a lot of good bosses. I, I mean, there's really only one squadron commander that just wasn't a huge fan of. And the joke was like, we're just taking all these lessons learned and just throwing them in the don't ever do this file. You know, <laughs> like, as long as you're learning, it doesn't really matter. Right. right. You can learn it's, good and bad. It's just painful. Every day is really, really painful. And I just have to keep filing away. I need to get a second yeah. filing cabinet, but no, it's good to have that. And that's, you know, for pilot training, that's another factor, I think, too. When it kind of builds on to getting people to want to be fighter pilots, especially in the T6 world, there's just not a lot of guys who are fighter pilots flowing back. I think it's it's trick, it's trick slowly trickling, but slowly. It, it might be a dude in a squadron now who yeah. is from a previous fighter. Yeah, on the ROTC side, I think we'll see the quality get better because they've started that OIRSD process, the... Um, it's basically a competitive board um, for recruiting. And so okay. you have to put your name in and it gets boarded. Now, my trust in that system after I tr after I tried two years in a row to get through the, that, that board and not get selected was a little shaken. But I've seen it evolve over the last couple of years. And I think I think we're getting better at it. And I think we're picking the right people now. I, I, I now really think it was like, how did you not get picked? Uh, you know, that's and so now it everyone applies if they want to be an ROTC instructor, they apply to that. And then in theory, they get filtered and matched including deck commanders. Really? So you have to apply to a board and then you make a list and then the region. So there's four regions and the region commander has to hire you off that list. It's, I mean, Are it's you, just like a Hawk board or whatever. I, that's what I was going to ask. Is it, if you're on the Hawk board and there's listening, like that's a, you get to, that's the air education training command board that meets to, select who will be eligible to be squadron commanders in AETC. So obviously you were an AETC, you know, squadron commander, but is that, that's a separate process to this? As it well? is. Yeah. You have to be on the Hawk board also oh, to nice. be a deck commander. Okay. Yeah. Why not make them, make them do both. Make it more painful. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I mean, I assume that's air. You're somewhere under air university, right? Correct. Which is under AETC. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, everyone's got to have their little kingdoms, so you can't you can't give those up. Yeah, that's that's interesting. But again, that doesn't really that doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence. Hopefully, like you said, maybe the system's getting a little bit better because I would imagine you had the qualifications to be there the first time around. After you know, I thought I did a, a sitting fighter squadron commander in AETC, but I thought yeah. I thought maybe it was like the functional not wanting to release. Yeah. But we, like the OG went to the functional and was like, hey, is it because you're not saying that he's good to go? And they're like, no, we'll, we'll let him go. Yeah, I would figure that would stop even before, like the functional, would, like you wouldn't even be able, I would imagine they're like one of the initial signatures to mm -hmm. allow your package, so to speak, to go to the board. So yeah, No, it's weird. It's after the fact. So if you make that board, <laughs> they have to sign off on it. Classic. Man. Yep. Oh, well. All right, we jumped around a lot with uh, ROTC and stuff. I want to ask a few more questions about uh, maybe some of the nitty-gritty C-130 and, and F-16 stuff, but the the fact that, again, that you were able to, you know, jerry-rig and, and make up your own <laughs> C-130 equipment and get it approved and flown in theater is pretty awesome. But you uh, get picked up for pilot training out of that, get the Viper first assignment, and then you go you, Kunsan or Hill first? I went to Osan first. I was Osan, a team. You, 
Okay, and then Hill, and then I think that's where I saw you did a TSP uh, right to Kunsan. Yeah, I did a TSP to Kunsan. Were you there? No, 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 no. I just I was looking at your bio. I was like, ah, oh, oh, TSP. Yeah. But that's like the shawl, that was like the shawl deal. The shooters always went TSP. Gamblers and the Tigers always deployed, but you know guys would go Kunsan, PCS to shawl be a shooter, then TSP Kunsan come back another six months or so and then go PCS to Kunsan. Yeah, just I like, did. Yeah, know. I did. I did the Osan <laughs> for 18 months to Hill. And then 10 months later, I was back at Kunsan <laughs> for seven months. Yeah. Nailing it. Yep. And it's just like a vicious cycle. I was like, call it the triangle of death now with, uh, Shaw, Kunsan, Holloman, you know, you're just getting like this vicious cycle. Yep. But yeah, you know, first world problems. Then in, Throughout that too, like I, again, you're kind of late to the game, getting to the Viper as far as career goes. Yeah, Was it a sure. challenge for you to, you know, you know, deal with upgrades, get the jobs that you need to do to, you know, get promoted and things like that, or how did that work out for yeah, you? Yeah. So for my first assignment at at Osan, I showed up and. My squadron commander randomly was a prior C-130 navigator turned Viper guy. And so he immediately like glommed on and was like, hey, we need to give him a position in the squadron that looks good on paper, right? So like he needs yeah. to be the chief of something immediately, even though he's a wingman. And so um, I became the chief of scheduling standard uh, first assignment. It was brutal at Osan. <laughs> fighting for, for airspace you. until midnight every night. Um, but that, you know, that position right there, um, I think I performed decent at it. And that kind of just begun the snowball for me to be able to upgrade faster. Right. People pushed me through upgrades a little bit quicker. I had, you know, Hulk Bennett. I do. Yeah. Hulk, he actually took over the gamblers right as I was uh, separating. Yeah. Yeah. So Hulk was, uh, just a line IP at the time. I think he was maybe a flight commander, but he was he he went to Wick from uh, Osan, okay. and he, he you know he he pushed me hard, made me study all the time. I mean, he was like on on me to like get it done because he could, he I think he could see that like I was behind in the jet, but my leadership or maturity outside as an officer was you know where it needed to be, and so. Um, he, he was pretty hard on me. Kata Arky was another one um, okay. that pushed me pretty hard during that time. And so, you know, I had mentors along the way and they're, they're like peers to me now, but at the time right. I showed up and, you know, Hulk was an IP with 900 hours and I was like this peon wingman that didn't know anything about the F-16, but we were the same year group basically. Yeah. So it was just an interesting dynamic and I had kind of dealt with it through pilot training to kind of walk that fine line because my flight, I was older than my flight commander at pilot training. And so, um, it, I think going through pilot training and having that relationship with the flight commander, uh, where he understood where I was a lot older than everyone else, but he still held me to the same, you know, he's held me accountable as anyone else, um, helped me when I got to Osan to kind of know that fine line and how to walk it. I became a flight lead at Osan. Uh, on my very last sortie was my flug cert. Nice. Uh, so I did my flug cert, Finney flight. Uh, they, you know, whatever, taped me up to the pylon and uh, sent <laughs> me on my now. way. Yeah, can't do that now. Can't do that anymore. Yeah. No duct tape, no water, uh, yeah. whatever the regulations say. Too, too harsh. Yeah. Um, and then 
from there I went to Hill and it kind of just stayed the same kind of mentality. Like I was working pretty hard, um, but people were there taking care of me too. And so um, my squadron commander pushed me right when I got there and I became an ADO. I went through the IPUG shortly after getting to Hill. Yeah. And so they, they pushed me really quick through there. Uh, and then I was an instructor for like two or three years or two years. And then um, the demo gig kind of uh, evolved and I became chief of Stanaval at Hill while I was doing the demo gig um, working for the OG. So you're doing, you're doing both. Cause yeah, I did so demo. The, and that's it, the, that was the it. thing like, because it wasn't a full up demo. They just kept me as an instructor, as an evaluator. I was an evaluator and uh, the demo guy. And which was cool for me. I got to do, you know, not upgrade rides, but I could do kind of plus rides for people. Um, yeah. Out and back. I could have them lead the sortie out and back to wherever, we were, where we were going. Um, I could come up with objectives to like check stuff off in their grade book to actually get stuff accomplished on our sorties yeah. to and from the, the air shows. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And at the time, no one was going cross country. Like no one had ever used their radar <laughs> to paint uh, thunderstorms or do any of that. And so we got to do some of that old school stuff uh, on the way. And, and really the mission planning piece, I think really helped a lot of the wingmen trying to like cold calling tanker units and be like, Hey, do you yeah. have a, uh, training sortie that you can just meet us at this uh tanker track with this much fuel so that we can make it in one hop versus having to like three hop it over there so yeah that that's, that part was kind of cool no that's awesome the i mean and then again for those who are not catching on that time frame sequestration so you know or coming out of sequestration everything ground to halt and yeah demo teams went away and then like you said came back as a heritage or or you guys it was, was it just, shut down at that point? It was just heritage for you to that. No, we completely shut down. So uh, I was okay. in the unit at Hill that completely shut down. We did not turn a wheel for 103 days. Man. Or maybe it was even more than that. I think it was like four or five, four months that we didn't, we did not even start it, or we would go start the jets and run the engine and then shut it down. And we were doing BSA crazy? in the sim. Oh yeah, that's, that's <laughs> just nailing it. Which I did see an article. The flying hours they just got cut. So yeah, um, you know it's a cycle. What can you do? It is. <laughs> yep. And from there, I went to school, uh, and then out of there, I went to Luke to be a DO and a commander. I thought for sure with my weird timeline, you know, I hadn't been in the F sixteen as long as everyone else. Um, I thought for sure I would go to staff or do something before I would come back to the jet, but. Um, they pulled me directly back to the jet. And I think it's just a direct correlation to how many people were leaving the air force in my year group yeah. at that time. I did. I mean, Shaw, I felt like I saw a lot of guys kind of similar. They would go to school and then come straight back or they would go be a DO and Kunsan and then straight back to Shaw. Yep. I, it, it'd be curious to see how it plays out. I know my year group, um, they and then it's roadshow. I think they said there was like 16 of us in the our year group for the Viper. And I don't know if that number is like normally like 80 or so, but like they knew there wouldn't even be enough of us if we all stayed in to be squadron commanders, let alone be 06s. And then I think out of that group, like there's only two that are still active duty. So I there's one guy I graduated pilot training with, and it's kind of interesting. He I saw he took over squadron last year, but then like my weapons officer when I was in the Gamblers. 
who's older, like he just took over a squadron. Again, I think a fast track guy, but it's interesting to see, yeah, where the puzzle pieces align and where guys land and, you know, what's yeah. open and what's not. But yeah, best of what's left, like I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, Juice, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat today. Before we split, I always like to ask everyone, you know, if they found, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old Juice walking the streets. Is there any advice you would give him? Anything you'd say, hey, do this different, or hey, go check this out? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like like we talked about earlier, I would definitely uh, give them the advice to not take no for an answer. And the other piece is not think that they know everything, right? Because when I was that age, I, I thought that I knew everything <laughs> and I knew exactly what I was going to do with my life. Um, but just having like an open mind and allowing, you know, good people to influence me in a, in a positive manner. Um, i.e. my brother when I was at mountain home to be able to show me the op side, um, I think has definitely changed my vector when it came to where I was going to end up. And so, uh, don't take no for an answer. There's always a waiver, right? And then, uh, yep. be open-minded to, to, you know, changing your game plan. If you think, yeah, you know, everything you don't. Perfect advice. Juice. Thanks for joining me. And I really appreciate talking. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, and if you're enjoying this content, do me a favor, swing over to iTunes, Spotify, drop a rating review. That helps the podcast out. If you're looking for additional content, again, swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. You'll find more great stuff living over there, and then you help the podcast out.